Welcome to episode six, Football Chairman, Hard Truth by Dara McAnthony. For those of you who've been subscribing and listening, thanks for your support. I hope you've been enjoying the, the weekly podcast I've been doing. Um, to be perfectly honest, it's been great for my mental health actually doing them. And Although I'm talking to myself and in the room on my own, so I'm not sure that's so healthy. But it's great to hear there's an audience out there. It's great to see the rankings. We're consistently in the top uh, five to top seven in um, football podcasts in Great Britain rising all the time in the all-time ch- sports charts as well. So, again, I'm, I'm humbled, and uh, I want to thank you for your support and listening. For those of you who maybe don't enjoy them as much as others, well, there's not much I can say to that, except that I'm always going to be honest. I'm always going to be transparent. I'm going to give my opinion, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be on YouTube. I've always been that way. I said it today to somebody I spoke to from The Guardian. I've been in football 15 years, and I don't feel like i got a God-given right to preach about the ins and outs of football, but I feel with the experience I've had in the industry and the game itself, that maybe my ideas, you know, are there on merit. Maybe they are worth listening to. Maybe I do know what I'm talking about. Um, I've won promotions. I've won relegations. I've built the club up. I've built teams up. Um, I've been in the championship. We've been in the championship. We've been in pretty much all the leagues in the EFL. So, you know, having been in that business for so long, in this business for so long, and wanting to be in the business for a lot longer, I feel... It's important I get my opinions across. I feel it's important to engage in healthy debates. Um, even to those trolls who come at me on social media all the time, I just think it's important. And, and at times like this, it's important to keep the conversation going. I'm not the type of person who just lies down. I'm not the type of person that just lets things happen the way people want them to happen, some people more than others. So I know I'm, I'm irritating some with my views on voiding the season and keeping the season going. Uh, I know a lot of people are in agreement. There's a lot of people who are in agreement who aren't actually saying a lot publicly, which is frustrating. Uh, I'm not going to call, well, I'm certainly not going to call anyone a carrot for not wanting to come out with an opinion, but I wish they were a bit more vociferous and stronger in their opinion on it than the people who are right now using their megaphone to push for the voiding of the season. It's happening in all the newspapers, there's constant articles going on, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. Um, in today's episode, episode six, basically we're going to speak about the voiding argument. Um, we're going to cover, obviously, Gary Neville came out today and talked about, you know, bringing money forward from the Premier League. It's an idea I came up with about three and a half weeks ago. And who cares who had the ideas first or whatever else? You know, I wrote my letter and I spoke about it in an episode, I think it was two of my podcast, how we can basically save football. And it was all to do with factoring future money. So we're going to speak about that a little bit today. I'm also going to give a narrative on the whole voiding argument that people like my friend Andy Holt at Akron and Stanley and other people maybe haven't quite understood. And I said it on Twitter just recently. I said, if you're going to shoot yourself in the foot, at least know the long-term effects from the injury. And there's lots of people who are pushing that argument for avoiding who are going to shoot themselves in the foot and don't quite realize the pain that's coming down the pipe. So I'm going to lay out that side of the argument today. I'm going to give you facts and figures, and I'll let you, the listener, decide. I'd love your comments back on DMAC102 on Twitter. You can hit me up on Facebook. You can hit me up on YouTube. Uh, also, alternatively, you can email me at realdaramcanthony at gmail.com. I've said that all along. I've had some great ideas come in on that email. So I'm going to give that side of the argument. I'm going to talk about, obviously, why don't I'm to my, with my family while in isolation and affecting our home life. And I'm going to give a little story about the Dwight Gale transfer at the end of this podcast. That You know, everyone wants me to share a little transfer story every now and then. So I'll go back over the Gailey move and the transfer and whatever else and, and you know, the ins and outs of that deal and how it happened and when it happened and the finances behind it and everything else. So that might be interesting to the, to those who listen just for the football side. 
and don't hear me harp on about coronavirus and voided football seasons and everything else. I will say this. You, like me, every day probably watch the news, you know, watch your press conferences, whether it be Boris Johnson's cabinet talking, whether it be Donald Trump and his cabinet here in America. We're all desperate for news. We are all desperate to get out of our houses. I'm climbing the walls like you are. Our kids are climbing the walls. We want some normality back in our lives. We want this lockdown to be finally lifted. And one hopes that's coming up. And I'll cover that in the first part of this episode before I go into the voiding argument. So for now, sit back, relax, or if you're out there jogging and running or doing some exercise, hopefully the podcast will bring a smile to your face. Again, thank you for listening. One last thing. I have a sponsorship for the show at the moment. It's not the most wonderful sponsorship. For anyone out there who actually wants to sponsor this podcast, it is in very high up in the charts. So it has been listened to by thousands of people around the world, including in, believe it or not, Malaysia and Singapore. Um, get in touch with me. Uh, if you want to put a sponsorship package together and you want to sponsor the whole episode, that's great. I'm going to give a large percentage of it to charity that would to do with the health care services when this is all said and done, because they're the people who deserve a swift pay rise after everything they've been going through at the moment. Enjoy the show. I'll be right back. Welcome back. So let's get the coronavirus bit of the conversation over, because that's all that obsesses, everyone's obsessing over. Um, news, I'm sure it's in your thoughts. I'm sure it's affecting your life. For those of you who've been affected by it in a health way, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, and I hope you're well. For those of you who've lost loved ones, in this horrible pandemic, our love and our thoughts are with you. Um, I constantly think of some of the older posh fans. I, I had a birthday conversation with one this morning. It was a terrific chat. 70-year-old man in Grantham, himself and his wife out in the garden doing a bit of gardening, and just hearing their spirits were good. Another shout-out to Jan Venters out there as well, who's on her own. We sent the care packages this week at Peterborough. Niall Mason and the players organised for a hundred of our older season ticket holders to get a, a, a nice package of groceries. And, and our thoughts are with you. For those of you fighting on the front lines and in the healthcare systems in the UK and America, again, love and respect. Going to the other side of this, I just want to say, and people get angry with me when I come out on social media and talk about coronavirus, and I talk about football, and I talk about going back to work, and I talk about life and society resuming in some form or another. And it, it draws that reaction of a large percentage of people are with me on that, and then there's a percentage who just come out and go, You've got no compassion. There are hundreds of people dying and you're not allowed to talk about life outside of our four walls and we must stay locked up until there's a vaccine. Well, let me be very clear. I have a great family. My father is 70. He's 70, 71. He's in isolation. I'm in my house with my children and my wife and we're in good shape and we could stay locked up probably for the next 18 months if we wanted to financially. We can pay our bills. We can feed each other. We'll be okay. My message isn't about me. Everyone keeps going on, it's, you know, you're selfish, you're this, you're that. This isn't about me. This is about having a bigger conversation about the bigger picture. This is about 27 million Americans unemployed, announced this week. Millions of people in the UK unemployed. This is about the family and the people who email me, who earn three, four hundred pounds a week, who just about cover their mortgage, just about put food in the fridge, just about have enough for insurance, just have enough to put petrol in their car. This is a conversation about the normal person on the street, which is millions of people worldwide. This is a conversation about people who would normally be having medical procedures who aren't allowed to. Okay, We are allowed to have this conversation. We're allowed to look at both sides of the argument. I understand. I'm following the guidelines. I'm not flouting them. I'm following the rules set in place. 
we're in lockdown here until the end of April. There are millions of people in the UK in lockdown until I think the 7th of May. People all over Europe, all over the world are in lockdown. We're all doing our bit. Totally get that. We're with it. We're, we're, we're buying into what we're being told. And we're hoping it flattens the curve. It makes a difference. But I'm going to have a really, really honest conversation with those of you listening right now. And here's where I am on this. If I'm getting told that I have to stay indoors and we have to give up in life itself for 12 months, 18 months until they find a vaccine, that's just not feasible. That's just not practical. That's just not going to allow life to go on, particularly economically. You're going to see a global depression. You're going to see the outcome, the deaths from a global depression far outweigh the deaths from coronavirus. Sorry I have to say it, but someone has to say it. Some are already saying it and they're getting pillared for it. This is the truth. You can have that argument on both sides. And I'm telling you right now, we have to resume some sort of societal life. If we have to come out of lockdown, and our governor of Florida has done a great job, and we've got a big older population here in Florida. If he comes out and says to myself, my wife and our kids, you have to wear masks when you leave the house for the next two months. You have to be very careful. You have to social distance. We'll do it. We'll respect whatever it's told for us to do if it helps. If we have to make sure the most vulnerable have to stay indoors through all of this and we have to look after them, we'll do that too. But let's get real for a moment. Let's look at the data, okay? The data is the key to all of this, and the data keeps changing all the time. What is the true percentage of people dying age-wise? What is the true percentage of people under the age of 60 who have no underlying condition? What is the true mortality rate for people like that? Have I got a 99% chance of living, or have I got a 90% chance of living? Who does it most affect? We have to see the data, and I'm a data freak. And I saw some data the other day, which went on about the mass majority of deaths being in care homes in a certain age group. These are important statistics for us to know. Because you've got people right now, and someone tweeted me earlier, I think it was 26 years of age, a healthy young person, who said they were absolutely terrified of leaving their house. Well, that's wrong. Because a person that age, from what we've been told, with no underlying condition, there was very, very minimal percentage chance of them dying from catching coronavirus. And, and these are the things we need to know and educate ourselves going forward. But one thing's for sure, we can't stay locked up forever. And you're seeing the protests already over here in America. Uh, you're seeing both sides of the argument, whether it's a blue state argument or a red state argument. Hopefully you'll see as more and more states open up and we can get to grips with this, that we can beat this. But staying indoors till there's a vaccine, it's not going to happen. It just can't happen. It's not realistic. I'm sorry if you're on that side of the argument. Good for you. Stay locked up for the next 18 months if you can afford to. But that's just not practical. Okay, what you're going to see is the summer comes and they're saying this goes away and it might come back in waves and it might come back with the flu. All the ifs and buts, we don't know. We've got to do things safely. We've got to do things methodically. We've got to open up businesses methodically. But I'll tell you what we have got to do. We've got to look forward. And we certainly can't live in fear while we're doing it. We have to live in hope. We have to be practical. We have to analyze the data and we've got to do the right thing. Everyone's throwing all the scientists at me today in the models. They all said this was going to be much worse, and they'd already baked in the social distancing when they said 2 million people were going to die, in particular here in America. You don't want to lose one life, and over 50,000 people have died from this. But again, we want to know the data, and you want to know how many of those people have underlying conditions. That doesn't make the argument any better, okay? But we do know going forward is if we protect the most vulnerable from this horrible virus, and we can go back about life in some sort of normality again, things will get back to normal. Things will be more positive. And hopefully they get better therapies. The hospitals are in better shape to handle what's coming down the pipe or if this blows up again or it gets worse. But there is no way on earth that we can all stay locked up forever. The other thing is the testing. Yesterday, New York did a, some sort of a trial test 
which basically I think the outcome was they think over 20, 25% of people have already had this virus. If that's the case, we need to know more. We need to do this kind of testing everywhere. Because if in our society, one in four people have already had it and have passed through this, that actually makes things a lot better. That actually tells you the mortality rates aren't 10% to 12% or 6 or 7%. It's more like 0.5%. I'm not saying that's a good thing. All I'm saying is it gives people a more realistic grasp on the argument whether or not you want to stay indoors or whether you want to leave your house. People have to get back to work. People have to start resuming some sort of form of society. Kids have to go back to school. We're finding now this doesn't affect 99.9% of children. They're also saying, and I've seen all these studies about, children actually aren't a strong passer of the virus back to adults. Okay? They're not, it's not a case of you send kids to school, they're going to be bringing the virus home to you. These are all the studies and the data we need to find out more about. I've never professed to be a scientist. I've never, you know, and I know Trump and everyone else are getting hammered for giving their own opinions on it. At the end of the day, we're all figuring this out as we go along. And I think the harsh truth is the scientists are figuring this out as they go along as well. You've seen that been told two months ago, masks are no good. Now masks are obviously necessary. Um, models were built telling us millions were going to die. Now it's thousands are going to die. So this is ever-changing all the time. Now, of course, we pray for a vaccine. Of course, we pray for stronger therapies. But let's get real. That's going to take time. And society doesn't have time. Society can't be locked up forever. I'm still in the camp. I live in hope. I won't live in fear. That's how I live my life. I respect your right to be different. I respect your right if you want to stay locked up. I know people in California, there's 50 million people locked up right now. And again, California, I think they've had 2,000 deaths or, or is it 3,000 deaths or whatever it might be from the infected. But there's no plan at the moment. There's no sign of hope. And I hate to live like that. I know for a fact our governor is going to come out with a phased plan on reintegrating us back out there and going back out to work and being able to sit in a cafe 10 feet away from someone else and having a coffee. These things are going to happen. I feel sorry for people in the States where they're going to carry this on longer. I understand where their governors are coming from. I understand they want to take a safety first attitude and approach, but to keep 50 million people locked up in an area like that's not feasible. And I think you're going to see more trouble ahead if more plans aren't put in place. So that's my conversation about coronavirus. I'm getting really tired of talking about it. I'm sure everyone else is tired of listening about it. But I just wanted to explain to the people who get angry with me every time I give an alternative opinion and want to get back to work and wanting to reopen my football club to give my hundreds of employees that hope that they can go back to work. I need to be able to talk like that. If I came out to everyone who worked at Peterby United and said, listen, guys, you're going to be out of a job for the next 18 months. We're just going to hibernate the football club. How do you think that's going to weigh on their mental state of mind in times like this? At the best of days, when we all get out of bed, we want to be positive. When you hear the constant crap on TV all the time and the constant changing winds and people's opinion on it, and the scientists' opinions on it, it can bring you down very quickly. I'd rather go the other way. I want to be positive. I want to be positive we're going to beat this. I want to be positive that if we have to live with it, we're going to live with it safely in the best way we can so that we don't spread it to other people and protect those most vulnerable, including someone like my dad who's 70. So I have to want to live like that. And my father's in that camp too. He doesn't want my kids locked in their house for the next 12 months and not going to school. He certainly doesn't want me losing the businesses I've spent years building up. Okay? So that's two, two different mindsets right now. I'm, I'd love to hear more people's thoughts on it. I have no problem if you're in the other camp. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it as well. Don't throw at me all the time that I'm, you know, I should listen to scientists and I shouldn't give my opinion on it. I'm not always talking about the disease. I'm giving the flip side to that argument because obviously it affects me 
It affects my businesses, the hundreds of people that work for me. And like I said, I can afford to stay home for the next two years, but there are millions and millions of people right now who can't. There are millions and millions of people right now sitting at home who are in deep depression. Suicide hotline rates are going through the roof, and I can see why. I can see why this is weighing on so many people. I worry about the people right now who've got £100 left in the bank, who don't know where their next amount of money is coming from, don't know how they're going to feed their children, and don't know how life's going to go on when this is finally over and they are allowed out of the house. So let's be sympathetic to their plight as well. It's, again, two sides, two arguments, and they're worth having, they're worth debating. Let's keep it polite and let's keep it clean. Okay, you're allowed to have both opinions. Be back after the break. So let's talk football. Let's talk voiding. Let's get away from the coronavirus conversation I just had there at the start of this episode. Over the weekend, there was a bit of a blow-up on Twitter. And it wasn't so much a blow-up between me and Andy Holt. Andy Holt's somebody who owns Akron and Stanley. Great guy. I have a lot of time for him. He runs a good club, runs a good business. He's got a lovely family. And this is one conversation. We Usually we're on the same side of the argument. This argument we're on different sides of in a big way. Andy's obviously been pushing his own agenda the last couple of weeks, and I've seen him build up to it, where he basically doesn't want to finish the season. He couldn't care less about the nine or ten games he's got left, um, and he wants to get on with planning for next season. So that's his side of the argument. I understand it. I don't respect it. I disagree with it, and I basically came out and I gave my opinion on Twitter, and I included him in on it. Some fans liked it. Some fans didn't like it. Some were in his camp. Some were in my camp. Obviously, I invited Andy on the podcast. I sent him a direct message on uh, Twitter. Um, he usually answers me straight away. Um, but no, he didn't answer me, so he's not on this episode to answer some of the questions I'd like to put to him. Because Andy uses Twitter quite a lot to question the EFL, question the finances of other clubs. And now, obviously, he's using Twitter to push the agenda that he couldn't care less about finishing the season. And he just wants to talk about next season. And in his opinion, we should just hibernate, save our money, and then start fresh. Get it? Totally get it. That's his argument. Some people will be in that camp. I'm definitely not in that camp. Look, I could be cynical and say Akron and Stanley are fifth, sixth, bottom of League, league One. And if they played the nine or ten games and they lost the majority of those games and someone like Tranmere went on a run, Akron and Stanley can end up back in League Two. So what suits Andy probably right now is a couple of things. One is finish the season, void it, do whatever do a points-per-game tally, Akron and keep the League One status. The other thing that suits Andy, obviously, is he's furloughed his players, something I didn't do, and I feel quite strongly about. So at the moment, I think you can get about 2,800 quid a month that goes towards players' wage bills. I would imagine that's covering probably 50%, 60%, if not more, of Akron and Stanley's wage bill. So Andy's actually probably not losing any money at the moment. He's probably doing quite well where he's but not hoarding money, but saving money. So in his mind furloughing his players, waiting until there's a plan in place to start the new season, even if it takes three or four months. It's not going to cost him a lot, and it can keep his lovely football club in business, and then go again when things resume. Life doesn't work like that for me. I'm firmly against that. The idea that I can have the government pay my players' wages and then argue about doing away with a season that we're basically 78% of the way through doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't sit well with me for the clubs that have worked really hard and invested a lot of money into their seasons. And it certainly doesn't sit well with me for the fans sitting at home who've got absolutely no sports to watch. And the one little hope they've got is that they want to support their football club behind closed doors, possibly inside stadiums again at some stage in the future. I'm not sure why the argument avoiding the season is so strong today. Three weeks ago when this was blowing up 
and and we saw what was coming down the pipe with infections and death rates. I can understand people talking about it. What I don't understand now is as we come down the slope, as infections, as death rates are dropping, mortality rates are dropping, there's stronger therapies coming out, there's more positive news all the time. Why everyone is so desperate to avoid a season? I just don't get it. Right now, the plan is to return to training on the 16th of May. The plan then is to finish our season in June and do it over a 30-day period. I know the EFL mentioned 50 days, but we've spoken since, and they've said it can be done in 28, 30 days. It's football. Our players, when everyone else gets out of their houses on the 7th of May, and they're allowed safely, safely and cautiously, wearing masks, whatever, go back to work. My players can go back to training, like they've done in Germany. I would love that. Why don't we love that? If my players safely can play games in June again, and we can do it behind closed doors in a controlled environment, very few people there by the players and the officials, and we can give our fans something to watch, something to enjoy at home, rather than binging on Netflix. What's not to enjoy about that? If we can stick to the integrity of the game, finish our season up as best possible, allow teams playing for promotion to fight for promotion, allow teams who deserve to be relegated go down in relegation, what's not to love about it? I'm not quite understanding the argument. I'm not quite seeing that side. Bar people worried about being in relegation already. Bar people worrying about they're not able to furlough players anymore and suddenly they're going to have to take them off furlough and start paying their wages. I really, really don't understand where they're coming from. And I'm going to talk about in this update or in this part of the podcast, I'm going to talk about the price of voiding. Because I'm not sure some of these owners who have these agendas, and I, I know there's a few of them, and I know some fans that get at me every day and get very angry. Usually it's fans of clubs that are in relegation zones who would love nothing more than the season to be voided. They come at me aggressively and they think, don't talk about football and blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm sorry, I have to fight the battle. I have to fight for my football club. Myself and my partners have invested everything this season to try and get promoted. We've invested everything in making sure our football club does as well as it possibly can. We've invested in our, giving our fans 44 games of football. I'm not sure why we need to stop now. I'm not sure why when we're on the cusp of lockdowns being lifted in certain countries and certain places and people can go back to work that we suddenly just call time on it right now. I don't see the sense and I don't see the reason behind it. So I'm just going to explore a little bit of the financial analysis I did on the voiding argument. So bear with me. And if anyone's not quite sure, go back over this. Right now, the majority of clubs have completed 77 to 78% of the season. So it's 22, 23% of the season's incomplete. If we're to say tomorrow, the season is voided. Let's just, all of this is, is theoretical. Let's just say Andy Holt gets his way. Let's say other people who are in that argument get their way. And, and, and forget about the media narrative. The majority of people don't want to avoid the season. That's just the media narrative. It's absolute bullshit. Okay, it's a big argument coming up every day on, on social media channels. It's a real agenda-driven thing by certain people in it. But I'm telling you now, the mass majority in the leagues want to finish. The EFL want to finish. They want to do things the right way. And if it's safe to do it, and we're allowed to do it, and we'll work with the government on it, we're going to finish the season. But let me just give you the argument. I said it earlier about shooting yourself in the foot. If you're going to shoot yourself in the foot, and if you're going to avoid the season, at least know what the long-term effects from the shot in the foot is going to be. And I'm going to paint them out right now. So, if we finish the season right now and it's avoided, and it's basically this 23% incomplete, in other words, there's 9-10 games left in our season with 44 games in the season, here's what's going to happen. In a typical year, we get paid approximately, and I've written these down in figures here, whatever else, about £1.7 million in EFL and solidarity money. That's what we get paid to play 44 games of football. 
Take 23% of that, it's about 390 grand. That's 390, 400 grand. So by right, if we avoid the season, we've fallen short, we most likely are looking at refunds, and Andy Hall screamed about who says we need to give refunds, but he's a businessman, he, he's in manufacturing. If somebody did an order with his business, and he fell short on the order, and they'd already paid, and he decided to only give them basically 78% of the order, I'm sure they'd be asking for a refund of the 22% that's incomplete. So about 400 grand there, we'd have to refund to the EFL and in solidarity payments to the Premier League. Let's take season ticket refunds. Now, most fans have been really good about this. They haven't made a run on refunds for games. And if there's no games and they're played behind closed doors, our compromise will be, I follow, free ticket, watch a game live. That's how you get your last nine, 10 games as a season ticket holder. But let's say there's some fans who decide, I want a refund. Let's say we void the season. Let's say you didn't get to see those X amount of games. Let's say there's five home games on average for each team. We're talking about season ticket refunds in the region of anywhere from 80 to 150,000 pounds, quite possibly in refunds. Add that to the 400 grand in EFL and solidarity. We're well over the half a million pound mark in refunds. Now let's talk about sponsorship. Most clubs have sponsorship deals. They have naming rights deals. They have um, names on their tops. You probably most sponsorship deals are anywhere from 150 all the way up to half a million quid, depending on who you are, particularly in League One and League Two. So let's say our sponsorship decided that we defaulted on our contract. Everyone has a contract when you sign a sponsorship deal. Let's say we fell in default of that and they decided to sue back for basically the 23% of avoided season that we didn't fulfill the opportunity to put that sponsor on TV in front of all these fans that are watching an iPhone. So let's take an average thing there of sponsorship of being up to 150 grand in refunds. So I've calculated a loan here, 700 to 850 grand is your refund bill. There's your void bill. So it's a great way you're furloughing your players and the government's paying their wages. However, when you make your decision to void, probably within seven days, you're going to have a run on your finances and have a bill for about 700 to 850 grand. With Andy and others who want to avoid the season, want to dig into his piggy bank and have to write checks for up to 800 odd grand, because that's possibly the price they're going to have to pay. Now listen, if they're saving that much money with furloughing their players, they're obviously paying their players a lot more than I know. So maybe it makes sense for them to do it. But I'm telling you right now, you shoot yourself in the foot, you're going to be left with the bill. Now let's go the other way. Let's look at the argument of playing out the season. Let's look at the argument of everyone gets out of lockdown on the 7th of May. Everyone is told they can go back to work safely. You've got to wear masks. You've got to social distance. You've got to do things cleverly, hygienically. And we've got to make sure that we don't affect the most vulnerable. Let's say the 16th of May, we get back into training. We start getting ready to play in June. Let's say we have those nine, 10 games in June behind closed doors. We have iFollow basically support. All the games are going to be beamed on iFollow. You're going to have free games for season ticket holders, so there's no running refunds there. You're then going to be able to sell. We're going to have to redo the match type price ticket. I agree with Andy on that. And we're going to make sure that the home teams get the majority of the iFollow revenue. So let's say on average, on iFollow, you basically sell two to 3,000 iFollow tickets because there'll be a lot of people with pent-up demand sitting at home wanting to watch these games. Let's say we charge 15 quid, maybe even 20 quid on average for people to watch. Same price as when you go into a stadium. Potentially, we could be making 30 or 40 grand a game through iFollow. That's two, 300 grand for the teams with home games in the period of iFollow. Throw in your seven to 800 grand in refunds. Throw in the two to 300 grand that you can end up getting from iFollow at nine games behind closed doors. You're starting to see the finances and basically the flip side to shooting yourself in the foot. You're starting to see my argument now. Let's also throw in the feel-good factor for our fans. If I can give my older fans football in June, 
If I can give my players something to look forward to, if I can give the hundreds of employees hope that they're suddenly getting back to some normality, even if they're wearing masks and gloves every day when they go to work, but at least they're getting out of the house and they're going to work and they still have jobs. Now let's look at fans through this feel-good factor of having their club back playing again, having the League One season finished. It's in June. They're going to be buying online merchandise. They're going to be buying kits. They're going to be buying strips. They're probably going to be buying season tickets for future seasons. Anything we can monetize to, for our fans to help our football clubs. The feel-good factor alone, that potentially could be worth probably at least another, I don't know, 100 grand? So you throw in the iFollow games, you throw in all that kind of spending by our fans, you could be talking about three, 400 grand per club. That's some seriously good income. That's income we're going to need. So you can now see my argument. We can go from voiding the season and having to refund up to seven, 800 grand, or we can put our season back on, give our fans some hope, give our employees some hope, have nine, 10 games behind closed doors, and possibly make two, three, 400 grand from doing that. That puts us in a healthier position. Now, people are going to say there's going to be a cost to putting the games on. Andy had this argument. Again, I don't quite see that because I'm already paying my players. The government's not paying my players for me. So I've already got a cost. The cost of putting the games on, if we talk about it, is probably only going to be, I would imagine, 10, maybe maximum 15 grand a cost per game to put on to make sure it's a safe environment. Let's face it, we only need the players, we only need the officials, and we only need a few non-essential officials from the football club working in an environment of a closed stadium. So again, to put on the cost of the games, you're probably talking about 100 grand for 9, 10 games. This is all doable. That's what frustrates me about this argument. That's what I don't understand. It frustrates me about the media writing articles and voiding all the time. I lost my rag with a couple of journalists at the weekend writing these constant articles about voiding, and I said it. Here's the irony. If I owned a newspaper, if I owned a TV station, and football was suddenly gone, it was voided, and it didn't resume again till the end of the year, what use do I have for the people who are writing the stories in football? There's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of journalists to lose their jobs. So what's the motive for writing articles about voiding? What's the motive for pushing an agenda that's not actually agenda driven by the masses of the majority. It doesn't make any sense to me. And if you're going to do an agenda article like that, and like the one that was done last week with Andy Holt, give the other side of the argument. Stop giving one side. I hate that when they do that. Give both sides. Both sides are relevant. Both sides have a healthy debate. The final thing I'll say in voiding is, I'm not going to talk about it anymore on social media. I'm done fighting about it. I'm done arguing with fans. I'm done arguing with Andy about it. Everyone knows my position. I'm going to fight my corner. I'm going to fight for my football club. If it's safe to do it, we, we start the season, we finish the season, we get on with it, we go into pre-season mode, we play our 9-10 games, and let's wrap it up in the right way. It's good for the integrity of the game. As I've just explained, financially, it's good for the football clubs, and it could save some serious catastrophes financially if there's a refund run on most clubs who do want to avoid the season. Let's do the right thing here as an EFL. For those of you with the agenda, you're the ones who ended up where you did. You didn't have a great season. You might have failed. You're going to have to finish it up that way. That's just life. That's what you signed up to. That's what you've already been paid to do. Do your jobs. Do the right thing. And do it for the other football clubs in your leagues. Now, in the next segment, I'm going to talk about, obviously, Gary Neville and the relief fund I spoke about a few weeks ago and the importance of saving football with this. Thank you. I'll be right back. One last thing regarding the voiding argument. I promise not to mention it again. Obviously, look, my invite still stands to Andy Holt. I have a lot of respect for him. And we're not always going to agree. I'd love to have him on. I'd love to throw some of the questions out to him and get his thoughts on it. And, because he does throw a lot of questions out on Twitter. I'd also say to him, I'm not sure 
he all he always asks questions of the EFL and what's going on on Twitter. I'd say to him maybe ring the EFL, ring the chairman of the EFL. It might be good for you to talk to him. Um, Rick Parry rang me uh, a few days ago. It was great to hear from the chairman of, of the EFL. We had a great chat for about 20 minutes. Um, we spoke about the newspaper articles, the voiding argument, the agenda that's been driven. And he reiterated what the EFL have said all along. The plan is to get back training in May. The plan is to finish up in June. If this carries on until after the summer, yes, there's an argument to have a conversation about what's going on. But to have the argument, to have the debate today, right now, when when the way the world is, the way things could change on a daily basis, it just makes no sense whatsoever. He was firmly in agreement with me on that. He said, you know, we suddenly get back out in two weeks' time, three weeks' time, and, and this thing starts getting under control, and we're allowed to do it in a safe environment, yeah, behind closed doors. We can give football to the thousands and thousands of fans in the EFL. Even if it's on TV, we can give them football. So he wants to finish the season. He's with me, as are many clubs. The legal side of this argument is there also. The lawsuits that will blow up. The EFL could get caught up in, in lawsuits for years to come if suddenly a voided decision was taken tomorrow. And these owners pushing the agenda. Not only did they want to listen to the previous segment of this podcast and the financial cost avoiding, but they might want to think of the legal implications and what comes down the pipe from this because that could be catastrophic for the EFL as we know it. Now, I'm going to talk about the financial relief fund. Uh, I spoke about a few episodes ago on my podcast where I said the EFL needed to raise 150 to 170 million. This wasn't government money. This was money we would borrow against future TV deals. This was money the EFL would allocate to each EFL club's debts that would be accumulated. Gary Neville brought it up today, and he spoke about factoring. It's an idea I came up with a good few weeks ago and sent to the EFL. I'm firmly behind it. I believe in it. He's absolutely right. It's something we can do. It'll fix our situation. The argument I'm trying to have, and I was speaking to Rick Parry again about it on the phone, people who are saying clubs are days away from going out of business, it's incorrect. Anybody who runs a football club that stays away from going out of business has no right to own a football club. But where the problem's going to be is come July, August, and September, that is where the mass problems are going to come for us as football clubs. Right now, we're deferring PAYE. We're deferring VAT. Our income streams are lower than ever. We potentially, when we finish this season, have a new season, could still have football without fans for a couple of months. Again, our income streams are going to be low. Some of us are doing deals to defer wages with our players, and I'll go into that in a minute. Another topic. So that money has to be paid back. And from July, August onwards, we're probably going to have payment plans to pay it back over four or five months. That is where the EFL relief fund and this factoring future TV monies into one big pot to go and pay those bills on our behalf by the EFL needs to come into effect. I know Rick and everyone at the EFL are working on this. They're looking at doing the, the factoring. They're looking at all sorts of possibilities. I don't want to go into more of the conversations. It was private. But I have confidence in Rick. I have confidence in the board at the EFL. For those who are screaming at them on Twitter and throwing questions up, my advice is ring them and speak to them. Um, sometimes it's best to go to the source instead of just slating them on every social media channel. You might want to have a conversation with them directly. It certainly made me feel better. I think the journalists who are writing those articles about voiding, the irony, the day that the EFL League One had meetings and League Two had meetings the other day, I was getting messages from all these journalists saying, well, what happened in the meeting? Sky emailed me and said, can you come on Sky and, and have a conversation about what went on in the meeting? Some of these outlets were having articles and newscasts on voiding the season and rumors coming out of the meetings before the meetings had even taken place. So that kind of sums that whole thing up. Enough about voiding. We need to get that financial relief package in place. If football is to survive, 
if us or clubs are meant to cut our cloth accordingly, people talk about using this as a chance to remodel football. I'm not against that. There's so much wrong with our game that we need to remodel. I put it in my document a few weeks ago to the EFL. We need to get the relief fund built. We need at least 150 to 200 million pounds put in an account that we can draw down on and pay those bills that we're going to fall behind on. We need to basically restructure our wage caps. We need to restructure the loan system. We need to restructure the spending per turnover per football club. We need to restructure how agents are paid. We need to do this in a responsible, fiscally responsible way. We can do that. We can start setting our, our industry up for the next four or five years. We can put our clubs on the right track. We can do things the right way. We can make our fans proud. This, in turn, will make it cheaper for our fans to come and watch. This will turn allow clubs uh, spend more money on their facilities, on their stadia. It will improve football overall. And if anything, it will make us invest more in our youth system. These are all key fundamental changes that need to happen within football. And I've, I've gone on about it in episode I think, one and two of the podcast. I won't bore you going through it again. But for those of you who want to hear my reasoning on it and the information I sent to the EFL, go back and listen to those episodes. Having been in the game and the industry for 15 years, these are the changes we need to push through. We're not trying to take advantage of the situation of the pandemic, but it's time now that we cut our cloth accordingly going forward. That's something I'm definitely in full agreement with Andy and many others on. So there we are. That's voiding. That's financial relief for football. These things need to happen. Pay deferral update. For three weeks, I've been in discussions with my players, my captain. We asked them as a club to take a 50% pay deferral for three months whereby we'd pay them back after that period of time and it would give the club a break. We wouldn't have to furlough players and drain the government of money that's needed elsewhere, particularly for the NHS. And I, I just don't think football clubs should be going down that route for their players. I understand for the staff, but players, that's just another whole argument, hence why we've kept on paying our players. Um, our players in the end came to an agreement. I'm not going to go into the amounts. Is it what I wanted? No, it's, it's not perfect. But in fairness, fair credit to our players. They came to an agreement. They did a deal. We've signed off on it now, and a certain percentage of our player wages are going to be deferred now for the next three months. And our players have shown that they support the football club. They support what we're trying to do. They understand the logic behind it. They could have easily got the PFA involved. Um, they could have easily made this a lot more difficult for us as a football club. But they came together uh, as a unit and did the right thing. For that, I'm very proud of them. My manager, he took a 50% pay deferment. My head of youth, he took a deferment. My football secretary, my CEO, our CFO, all key staff that are still fully working and not being furloughed have taken pay deferrals for a period of time. Many of them volunteered the pay deferral, and that just warmed my heart. With a 17-year-old youth team player um, who got his first pro contract, he's on like 300 quid a week, his dad rang us two days ago and said he wants to give up 50% of his wages. I said no, because obviously with the deal I've done with the first team squad, it only affects players on a certain amount of money going over. But that volunteered amount from that 17-year-old was just unbelievable, top class. That kid's going to have a great career. He's already showing that money's not important to him. His football club's important. His family's important and, and absolutely wonderful. And so many, there's so many stories like that going on in football. We, we don't read enough about them. Many clubs have gone down the pay-deferred route. It makes me proud to see it. Our industry gets pillared sometimes and slaughtered for all the wrong reasons. And these things are all good things to see. So I'm really happy about that. So... That's that on pay deferrals. Um, right now, we as a football club are planning to succeed as, as opposed to planning to fail. Our players on a training program. Next week, they're going to go on a heavier training program that will build up until the 16th of May when we're legally allowed to go back to work. That's what we've been told so far. That could change. As of the 16th, we'll bring them back to the training ground if we're allowed. 
We'll make sure the environment for the training ground is, is healthy, it's clean. We'll make sure those who are most vulnerable, and I include Sir Barry Fry in that argument, he's 73, he's had two heart attacks. I would not let him near the training ground, and he'll kill me for saying this, but I won't let him watch games live either. Because again, he is one of those most vulnerable, as are many people I know. And we're going to do our best to protect them. We're going to bring our players back in a safe environment, whether it's in small groups or large groups. We'll get more guidance from the government on that. And hopefully they'll get back to work. <laughs> and hopefully we can get back to playing football in June. And I can be having podcasts about winning and losing football games and losing my shit on here, because that's what people really want to hear. Um, a little bit about me and my family. Um, I've got three kids, 14, 13, and 11. And I sat them down yesterday, and I wanted to know, because they're doing homeschooling, and I wanted to know where they were mentally with everything and had they any fears or any questions. And look, kids are very innocent. You know, their, their biggest questions were, when can I see my friends? My daughter was worried about her holiday in June. Well, we're meant to be going to Dubai. Um, my son was loving homeschooling, so he was suggesting he never has to go back to school. So it was great to hear those opinions from youngsters. It's, it's just pure innocence, and I love it. They're my heroes because they're working their tails off on, on their final quarter of school from home. Um, they're not moaning. They're getting on with things. They have their swimming routine every afternoon. They're smiling. And I just want to make sure they're okay. Because it's tough for them. They're so used to a routine. They're so used to going to school. They're so used to being with their friends. And, and as horrible it is for all of us out there, it's so horrible for younger people. Um, and, that, and that's one of the real shames of this whole pandemic, what's happening to our kids. And the school this week, my, my youngest was having her graduation from lower school into middle school. And my son was graduating from middle school to high school. And they were due to have two graduation ceremonies at the end of May. And the school obviously used their usual Friday night, drop the bad news shit, uh, sent out an email basically saying, look, we're going to do virtual Zoom graduations. So that caused absolute uproar. And I went back to the school and I said, guys, you know, nobody wants to do Zoom graduations. I, I get we can't do graduations in May. We're not allowed to do big groups. But August is a long way away. And when we report back in August, we can do this. We can do graduations. Even if it has to be in groups of 30 and 40 and outside or with tents and with proper ventilation. We're learning so much more about this all the time, this virus, and, and the ways we can go about doing things safely. And If kids are going back to school in August, it's only right that they have their graduation ceremonies postponed to that as opposed to cancelling. I don't want to tell my kids on Friday night that their graduations were, were cancelled and they were going to be done in a Zoom conference. So that's something else that was going on in my life this week. We're going to arrange a game night next week. We're going to do it by Zoom. We're going to zoop in my my sisters and their partners. We're going to get my dad in on there. We're going to have a trivial pursuit night. And I'm going to have to be the adjudicator. So there's no cheating and no Googling on telephones. Um, I'm going to watch a couple of movies this weekend with my kids. Um, and, and just keep myself sane. And that's all I can do. When I finish this podcast, I'm going to go and start uh, my new Lego piece I just ordered. It's the Old Trafford Stadium. As a Liverpool fan, there's, there's a certain amount of... Um, hatred inside me for building Old Trafford as opposed to Anfield. I feel like a traitor. I'm joking, of course, to the Man United fans upset by that. But it's a great bit of Lego. I just finished the Eiffel Tower. That's a masterpiece that sat on the dining room table. Now I'm onto this, and I'm about to order some more Lego bits and pieces. I find an hour of doing Lego, not thinking about anything to do with football, the work world, coronavirus. It's brilliant for me. So I'd love to hear what you guys are doing to kill your time, whether or not you're being healthy or whether or not you're working out all the time. I want to shout out there to a few of the um, younger players. I had some of the parents reach out to me on Facebook, particularly some of the um, scholars lower down the lower down the pyramid who are like in ages like eight to twelve, who are part of the posh academy. I know they're I know they're finding it tough. I know they're not training with their pals. 
I know they're not seeing each other. I know right now it looks like there's no football for a long time. I just want to say to you youngsters, and Mrs. Gore sent me a message the other day over her son, football's going to come back. Everything is going to go back to some normality. We're not going to be living like this forever. I want you to share with your son and his teammates. They're going to be back together soon, sooner rather than later, okay? Because we just can't live like this anymore. And I don't want them to think that we're going to be living like this for years and years. We're not. We're going to beat this. Everyone says together, whether it's together or individually, we're going to find a way. But I know one thing's for sure. The future's bright. The future's posh. I'll say this about the academy graduates and all the youngsters in our academy all the way down to age seven and eight. Um, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the job you're doing. Stay positive out there. Don't be giving your parents too much grief. And lots of love to you from me and everyone at Peter United. Anyone struggling out there, I'll say it again. You need a phone call or a pick-me-up, I'm your man. And uh, I'll send you my best wishes. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. I promised a Dwight Gale story. I'm going to finish up when I come back after the break, and I'm going to give you a quick couple of minutes on the Dwight Gale deal. So the final wrap-up in this podcast, episode six from Football Club Chairman, Hard Troop by Darren McAnthony. I promised a little story on transfers over the years, and I've obviously been privy to a few deals in my time as chairman of Posh. One deal we did was Dwight Gale. Everyone remember seven, eight years ago, we signed Gailey from Dagenham. We paid, I always remember, we, we did a loan to buy deal, which was always guaranteed. We basically paid 500 grand for Dwight Gale. He was a 20, 21-year-old, um, had started okay in League Two. He got like seven goals. He'd scored a shitload of goals in non-league. We'd scouted him, you know, extensively before that, so we knew we were going to buy him. Um, we brought him in in the championship. He made his debut against Ipswich, came on as a sub. We knew he was special. We knew from all the analytics, from the scouting, that he was good. Myself and Barry thought he was going to be top class. The gaffer couldn't believe how good he was when he trained. Anyway, Gailey scored 13, 14 goals in the season. We were relegated. He became the big asset, and he became the must-want striker in the summer. We had a list of six, seven clubs in the Premier League who had him on their list. In the end, we struck a great deal. We'd just been relegated to League One. We had a big hole in our budget. We had to sell Gailey. It was financial sense for the football club, and it was right for Dwight to go on and, and get an opportunity to play at the top. In the end, Baz did a great deal with Steve Parrish, and... Some Palace fans will look back and think, well, Gale wasn't money well spent, but when they see the finances involved, he probably scored goals to help them stay in the Premier League. But they also made him, you know, a few million pounds profit on him as well. So really, it was great business from Steve Parrish, great business from Palace, great business for us. The deal was agreed. I always remember Baz ringing me and I'd given him all the numbers I wanted and he rang me and he was going through the deal. It was a six million guaranteed transfer fee. And there was about two and a half million in add-ons, including, you know, X amount per games played, X amount of Palace State in the Premier League, X amount if he signed a new contract, X amount if he won the Golden Boot, and also a sell-on. I think all when all is said and done, by the time Dwight had been sold to Newcastle and he played all the games, I think we earned over seven and a half million from over seven million at least from Crystal Palace. Of that, we were delighted Dagenham and Redbridge got at least God, it must have made nearly £2 million out of the deal. And that was the beauty about our policy of buying lower league talent because you always make sure at the sell-on, that lower league club always does really well. Grimsby made over a £1 million from our business on Ryan Bennett. Dagenham made over £2 million just on the Dwight Gale deal. So terrific business. But what people don't know is that at the time we did the deal, I was flying from America. It was in June. And we were going on pre-season to Ireland. And I can't remember where in Ireland. It might have been Port Marnock we, we'd gone to to have a camp. And the day before we were due to fly, we agreed a deal on selling Gailey. And I rang the manager and I said, look, Gaffer, I've sold Dwight. 
that's the bad news. And he was like, oh, God, we've lost Dwight. And I said, yeah, but let me tell you the deal. And when I told the guy for the deal, he said, my God, that's an unbelievable deal. You've got to do the deal. So I flew over to England for a day. And then I took a plane with myself, Barry, the manager, and our CEO over to Ireland the day before camp. And I always remember, it was probably the most nervous three days, four days of my life, because the Gale deal didn't happen instantly. He had to go to the Palace and agree terms, and he had to do a medical. Palace obviously have a very extensive medical. Most clubs are doing medical in a day. It was about three days worth of medical where you had to wait for tests on, on this and tests on that. So every day I'm at Barry, we're waiting for phone calls, we're waiting for the medical to be passed. Dwight's sitting at home. We're in Ireland on pre-season tour. We've got this £6 million deal hanging over us. Very, very stressful, knowing that it could make or break our upcoming season. Now, days have gone by. The deal's still not done. I've said to Barry, what in hell's going on? We got on to Palace. Steve Parrish was brilliant. He was communicating with us every day, as was Ian Holloway, who was the manager at the time. And it turns out he passed his medical. That wasn't the issue. What was holding the deal up was, and, and Dwight will forgive me for telling this story, because he was a young boy. He had fired his original agent, who he was still signed to, and he had a new representative representing him. Dwight was on 700 quid a week with us at Peterborough. And this deal at Palace, I think, was going to put him on 15 to 18 grand a week. So you can imagine going 700 quid a week, 15, 16, 17 grand a week. And what was holding the deal up was his new agent didn't wasn't allowed to sign the papers. His old agent had to sign. So even though you fired that agent, you still need the old agent to sign. Now, of course, Dwight, his camp, his new agent, didn't want to pay the previous agent the money that was involved in the deal. So this is what was holding the deal up. And at one point, the deal was nearly cancelled. And we're ringing Dwight in his home. And of course, Dwight, being a typical footballer, was like, talk to my dad, talk to my agent. He's on 700 quid a week. And there's a deal that could blow up where he's earning 15, 16 grand a week and you wouldn't even know it's speaking to him. And this is sometimes the mentality you can deal with with footballers. In the end, I had to throw the solution out. We had to pay the difference, um, legally of course, to the old agent to allow the new agent to take over and do the deal. There was no way the deal would happen if we didn't intervene. I think it ended up costing us about 60, 70 grand. I think it ended up basically, well, look, it's it's one of them things. Ask yourself the question, if you're, if you're about to lose six million pounds, versus having to spend an extra 50, 60 grand. You do what's best for your football club. You do the right thing. Dagenham and Fairness came to the party and joined us in making that happen, and we made it happen. I always remember it was like a Thursday night. We were playing, I think it was Shelburne away in a preseason friendly. We're driving in the car. Steve rang Barry, told him Palace were about to pull the deal. I basically, we got on to Dwight. We got on to his dad, his, eight, his two agents at this stage, and basically that's what it came down to. Like I said, money talks, bullshit walks, that's the football industry for you. You wouldn't believe how many deals can nearly fall apart over the space of a few grand. The player was even willing to leave his house and fly to Ireland and join us in pre-season tour on a £750 a week, as opposed to the money that he was about to lose going to the Premier League. That is how football works. You, you shouldn't be surprised by this. This is the industry we're in. It's bonkers at times. That's the Dwight Gale scenario. He's gone on. He's had a great career playing in the Premier League. He's played for big football clubs. He's another one of those young players I'm proud to have been involved with. Proud every time I see him scoring goals. Terrific young guy. Um, did brilliant for our football club. We paid 500 grand for him. We had him for six months. The 500 grand was payable over 48 months. So get this. By the time Dwight left us six months later, we'd only paid 60 grand at a transfer fee. So you imagine now spending 60 grand on something and in six months' time making 6 million on the 60 grand investment. That right there is how you do business in the transfer market. Signing out, episode six, Hard Truth, Dara McAntony. Hope you've enjoyed it, guys.